Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. My guest today is Jarvis J. Masters. Jarvis is the first person I've ever spoken with on death row. I've thought so much about the men and women living on death row, and at Compassion Prison Project, we have focused our efforts to make sure everyone on death row has a pen pal. We've already paired over 400 people on death row with pen pals. I recently visited death row in the United States, and my resolve to end the dehumanization and the state-sanctioned murder grows deeper in my heart every day. Speaking with Jarvis was an important moment for me in my life and a confirmation of my belief in the unending potential of the human spirit. Jarvis J. Masters was born in Long Beach, California in 1962. He's a widely published African-American Buddhist writer and the author of That Bird Has My Wings, the autobiography of an innocent man on death row, which is the latest pick for Oprah's book club. His poem, Recipe for Prison Pruno, won the Penn Award in 1992. He has kept an active correspondence with teachers and students across the country for two decades, and his work continues to be studied in classrooms in both grade school and colleges. Since taking formal refuge vows with H.E. Chagdud, Tulku Rinpoche in 1991, Jarvis has also been guided by venerable Pima Chodron, with whom he shares an enduring friendship. In 2020, he became the subject of a podcast series, Dear Governor, as well as a new biography, The Buddhist on Death Row, How One Man Found Light in the Darkest Place by David Sheff. Originally sent to San Quentin State Prison in 1981 for armed robbery, Jarvis was convicted of conspiracy to murder a prison guard in 1985 and sentenced to death in 1990. Because his case involved a correctional officer, he was placed in solitary confinement and endured there for 21 years, from 1985 to 2007. Jarvis exhausted his state appeals in 2019 and his case is currently headed to the federal courts. So the beginning of this interview was technically compromised, so we start the interview mid-conversation. I started with a quote from one of his books, Finding Freedom. Jarvis is talking about the men he lives with in prison. He says, here were America's lost children, surviving in rage and refuge from society. I was certain that many of their crimes could be traced to the horrible violence done to them as children. Then I continue on with talking about the chapter Scars, where he describes the unimaginable events in his childhood that he endured. His mother was a heroin addict, and she neglected Jarvis and his siblings. And then I mentioned the story of the man who threatened to kill Jarvis and his brothers and sister while his mother stood in front of them to save their lives. I asked Jarvis, you have forgiven your mother and have found the humanity in her. How did you work through that? And now let's begin with part one of my interview with Jarvis J. Masters. monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. I, I forgot where we left off at. I know we were talking about um, my mother and mothers of, you know, trauma, trauma. Let um, me, you know, wounded, you know, a lot of us wounded folks, you know, um, I feel more better saying wounded than traumatized. For some reason, I don't know why. I just feel like we were hurt. You know, we were wounded. There was something that was there that 
somehow we need to figure out how to heal ourselves from. And when I talk to, you know, guys here, you know, when I say the word wounded, we all can identify with that, you know. Um, it's not a, a medical uh, uh, terminology. It's just what we feel, you know. It's just feel hurt. We feel hurt, you know. We don't feel like we can understand the, what our brains go through, you know. Uh, the experts that knows how to really, really define what trauma what trauma really means and how it affects us growing up and, you know, what it does to a lot of us by not providing, you know, especially people of color. Our low income, we don't, you know, it's not often that we get that kind of help when we're early in, early in our lives. You know, we don't, we don't go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. We don't, you know, have therapy. And none of those things occur, you know. And it just affects me. It, it, it hurts me. I feel wounded when I know that, you know, I can see myself in so many people, young people's letters to me, you know. Um, and I and I really know where they, where I can relate to what they're saying, you know. And um, it's so beautiful, man, for people to realize what they're going through, you know. Uh, yeah. to say, I don't know what the hell's going on with me right now, that is a very, very deep, dark hole. But for someone to say, you know what, I, there's a lot of trauma in my life, you know, there's a lot of wounded things going on in me, you know, that's a really, really good start because now you know there's things that need to be fixed. Uh, there's things that you need to work with and understand and relate to people. Exactly. I really love the idea. Yeah, so I really love the idea that, you know, I have an experience, man, that matters, that counts, you know. Um, and it may, you know, it matters, you know, it just counts. You know, my life matters, you know, and I love to say that to a lot of people that I write to. I haven't written a lot of letters lately, but um, we matter, you know, no matter where we are, you know. Um Absolutely. It's it's because you're part of us. I mean, I think everyone matters because what we do to each other affects all of us. And yes. and the, what you bring to the world is important. Your positive experiences and your positive thoughts and your negative experiences and your negative thoughts. They all have an effect. Yes. Yes. And yeah, and you know, for, you know, I know it should be for you. I, I, I know you, you care about this a lot. You know, it, what comes from that is a, having some sense of responsibility, too, you know. Um, yeah. I feel responsible about what I say, you know, to people. I feel responsible for that because I know that my voice has something to say that needs to be understood in a way where, you know, I'm sharing the real deal with them, you know? Uh, yes. Yes. You know, that I hurt, that I, I cry, that I hurt, that I, I do all these weird things, you know, and, and you know, when people tell me, they, this is a perfect description of who we are as human beings, man. It's really, you know, I don't know why we're trying to make more of who we are, you know? Uh, 
we stumble, we fall, we get ourselves back up. Some of us don't, you know. Um, we look for ways to address our pains, our sufferings. And for me, it was always meant, for me, it's, it's meant spirituality, you know. And when I talk about spirituality, I'm talking about when I was a kid. I mean, I think what my foster parents were telling me was, you know, there's a greater, there's a greater good out there, you know, and, um, there's some way, there's ways you can tap into that. And, you know, you know, and the way they were talking to me was, you know, they were, they were just making sure that I don't become so hurt and wounded that I couldn't get myself up, you know. That I would always think that I'm a bad person, that I always think that something happened to me that really, really affected me and there's no get back from it. Yes, it sounds like your foster parents were really um, an important part of your life. How long did you live with them? Yeah, it sounds like they were crucial to to who you are today. Um, About four or five years, the most crucial years of my life, too, for me, you know. I don't know uh, uh, where psychology say that, you know, a young person is most effective, you know, in their life, more open to understanding the nature of who they are and their memories. I don't know where that starts at, but for me, it started right when I was about four, five, six, seven years old, you know. Uh, They were there at that time, you know. Yeah, so I really, really appreciate, excuse me one second. Um, Your foster parents. Yeah, my foster parents. Yeah, they they were instrumental. You know, they're very instrumental. And the older I get, the more I understand what they were talking about, you know. Um, you know, the faith, you know, how, where's our life without faith, you know. And just certain things that I can see um, that affected me in ways where, you know, I just count my blessings, you know. Um there's a, there's a quote I want to quote from the book. Um, you say, here were America's lost children. You're talking about prison. Surviving in rage and refuge from society. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I'm going to start that again. Here were America's lost children. Surviving in rage and refuge from society. I was certain that many of their crimes could be traced to the horrible violence done to them as children. And that's what I've, that's what I've discovered walking into prisons is, is the reason I think they're there is because of the violence that they grew up with and the normalization of violence that happened. And what's so magical about um, you having lived with those foster parents right after living with your mother and that event that you described in scars when your your mother um and the man she she brought home came wanted to kill you the foster parents were kind of like a warm embrace after that 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 very troubling childhood yes yes and i think the key word for me and it remains the key word 50 plus years later is that when, when, when they used to use the word sick, mm-hmm. you know, that gave me a visual. It returned me 
two moments in my life that I posted that have been so traumatized by, you know. But then when I get that visual with the word, I see the sickness and not the neglect. I feel attached to the neglect part. I feel attached to, I hope she gets well, you know. Yes. And that, year after year after year after year after year, you know, you, you realize that when you see people who are heroin addicts, they're, they're not, they're not well. Right. You know, when you see people who are having these addictions, they're not well. You know, uh, and to hold that real reality that they're not well, it just, it gets rid of all the other stuff, you know. It gets rid of all the blaming and all that stuff, you know. And it's just not well, you know. Um, and yes. When you're not well, you do stupid things. You know what I mean? You're, you're not, you, you have kids, but you're not there to, you, you know you're not going to be able to provide for them, you know. Uh it's just you're not well, and, and that's uh that 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 takes away all that other junk, you know. Why exactly. why I remember that night? Why I feel so bad? Why I want to you know hurt myself? Why you know you know why are you asking me to love my mother when she did all these things? Why would you want me to you know have some love and compassion for you know? for all the horrible things that my life experienced, you know. Um, And my response is, man, if you get that visual, if you remember what I know you can see, right as we're talking to each other, you would know, you would see a very sick person. Yes. Same with my mother. You would see that sick person. And once you get a visual of how sick she was way, way back when, you knew and you know today why you have so much respect for your mother, you know. Uh, She becomes your hero. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I mean, to, to survive all the violence you see her done to her, you know, and she can still reach out and hold you, you know? Yes. Yes. She can push you under beds while, you know, men come in there wanting to kill you and jump on the guy's back because he does. she doesn't want him in her room where the care kids are. Yeah. You know, you, yeah, crawl, she- out, you crawl out from that mattress and you see this pool of blood. And she's reaching for you. And now, 10, 20, 30 years later, she's the hero. She's not uh, a mean mother, someone who neglected you, who hurted you, who who didn't care about you. She is a victim. You know? And I've always felt that way. So, you know, people can, and that's a, 
and that's why I really felt it necessary. And I and I would say that to a lot of guys who's you know who's in who's in a joint, who's in prison. That it's really necessary for you, you, we, us to get our stories out first. Because if you don't get your stories out first, it would never be your story. Uh, it would be descriptions from inexperienced people who doesn't know what you were going through at the moment that those things were happening. Because we all have different responses. And my my wish is that you, know, you have sixty seconds remaining. We tell our we tell our stories and we share those stories with people who need to hear them. You know, um, yeah. and I'm glad that I was able to do that. I had enough help. I had people who cared about me. I I, I, I was blessed to be able to do that. Um, and not too many, not a lot of people will. But you know, I would love. I was, you know, we need to tell our stories and not have people describe our stories to other people. Uh, because then you'll get that. You'll get something. You'll get you'll get to hold that person's you know uh, life experience. Yes. Yes. Your mother loved you fiercely. Yeah, she. You, you were right. You're right about that. You know. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I was, I was, I was, I was blessed to see other, to, to see it from another point of view. You know, um, and the foster care that I got as a young, as a you know, a toddler, five, six years old, was the, was crucial. You know, and that's the point I'm trying to make. It was very crucial to me. You know. Um, yeah. Yes, and then you went to another foster care, right? Is that what happened? Oh yeah. The other foster home was, you know, was terrible. You know, it was terrible, and I got a chance to know right from wrong right off the top, you know, because I knew what wrong looked like, you know. And that was another way of uh, my first foster parents giving me something to, you know. To, to be able to bear witness to. I knew right from wrong. Uh, and the second foster home was all wrong. You know, yeah. and I learned how to run away. And from that point, it just went a whole other direction, you know. Um, I, I, I didn't like living at homes no more, you know. Um, I sort of felt more comfortable living in placements, juvenile halls or boys' homes or something like that. Uh, but I didn't trust the home anymore. You say in the book, you say home is where the heart is. Home is wherever the heart can be found. So, yeah. I mean, that's what we try to aspire in our life experiences, trying to find where we are being the best place we can be inside, you know. Um, if we, if you know, if we're in jail, then there's something, you know, we need to feel loved by, you know, and that's our humanity. Um, so when I when I speak of the heart being where the, you know, where the heart is, it's it's wherever you are, you know. Uh, there's something there's something good about that. 
you know, and that's the way I feel about it, you know. Um, when I'm meditating, when I get up, you know, uh, I don't feel, you know, I'm trying myself, I'm trying not to feel so crushed by what's going on around me. And, you know, I take heart to, you know, being able to do things for myself, you know. I take heart to be able to um, share with people my life experiences in prison, you know. Have you ever just sat down and you start writing and there's so many things unique about what you're saying to you that you've never actually seen before, you know? Um, I mean, just your understanding just come out off, right off the pages, you know, um, of what you're writing about, and you you realize that there there's, there are corridors, there are secret doors, there are all these open windows that you realize that if you go inside or you walk through or you crawl under, there's there's something else that you want to write about, you know. There's something else that you feel like is important. Um, and you trust your heart to say it. You trust you to be able to say the things. You know, and as I read, you know, the magazine that you sent me, I see, I see everybody being able to say these things, you know. Uh, I see it. I see their heart being where they are. You know, I hear, I hear their message and I read their message and, you know, you see the beauty in, 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 in being a human being that we can recover, we can, we can always re, rediscover something else. You know, and, and this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And in prison, that's what you know. I was able to do. I was able to, to discover something else. You know, and it was not always Buddhism. It was just. Um, Spirituality, you know. Uh, yeah, I learned how to meditate when I was practicing meditation long before I, you know, I became a Buddhist, you know, because I was trying to deal with a lot of stuff, you know, and nothing compared to, you know, people who have to deal with so much more than I do, you know, so... And that's where I discovered where my heart was, you know. That was the story to that. That's how I discovered where my heart was. Yes. And your heart is wherever you are. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, you're right. Your heart is where I am, you know. Um, there's so many outside forces that are capable of wounding us to the point where Life is just a drag, you know. Um, and I think, you know, being here on death row, I think that drag is really what's where most people are, you know. Um, mm. You know, it's just too late. It is too late for them to, you know, spend the energy to, you know, to write, to to explain to themselves, you know, uh, which way went, which way was the wrong way of doing things, you know, which, which, what turn did they give, what turn did they uh, move their life into, you know, 
And it's a hard, painful thing. I think he said it in this magazine and in other places I read it. It's, you know, when you go into this, when you go in to try to rediscover who you are and your life experiences and what traumas you might have had that you may not be aware of, you know, how wounded you really are that you're not aware of, that's a painful step. You know, and, and I, I, I say that to, I hope people really understand that. That's, that's, that's not easy, you know. You know, if you, when, when someone talks about incest, that's not easy. When some people talk about being beaten or almost half to death by your parents, that's not easy to talk about, you know. And um, But people are talking, you know. And that's why I really, I, I really feel close to what you're doing, the work you're doing, because we're talking, we're writing, you know. Yeah. Talking about death row, I'm going to read this one passage that you wrote, and I think this applies to some of the people on death row. You say, looking back, I realized that it wasn't rage that motivated me, so I hid behind anger to avoid certain truths about my life. I remember once walking down the street when I came across a tree growing in the pavement of a parking lot between cars. My first reaction was to look at it, study it, wonder. I thought, how is this possible? But I wasn't in school. I've never learned these things. I smashed the little tree because I knew I'd never go to school. There was no room for wonder in my life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the experience of so many people, too, you know. You lose that sense of wonder. You know. And when you lose that sense of wonder, you're you're very vulnerable to so many other outside forces, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. But you've you've recovered your sense of wonder. Yes. Yes, I have. I have. Yes, I did. You know. And I get from a lot of people that was here before me that a lot of the, the older guys that was here when I first got here, you know, they, yeah. they, they, they provided the books, you know, and they provided the, the, the opportunity to read and to write and to, uh, say something, you know, and, my sense of wonder just came back, you know. Um, a lot of times, you know, uh, you know, when we're young, we want to be, we want to be astronauts, we want to be fire trucks, you know, we want to be firemen and all these other things. And that sense of wonder, you know, is the first step of trying to figure out who we are and what we're going to be in our lives, what we're going to, you know. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And I had lost that. I had lost that sense of wonder, you know. Um, there's a story I, I, I wrote, and it's not in Finding Freedom. Uh, it was about me when I was, uh, after I was just wanting to be by myself and wanting to... Um, hide out, you know, and not be in the neighborhood, you know, after, you know, cops are there or something. 
and you just want to get out of the neighborhood and find some place where you just want to be, you know. I used to always go to UCLA, the college out there in, in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, I used to go to UCLA because I knew no one knew me there, you know, and I knew no cops would find me there, you know, if they were looking for me, you know. And I would get this big old telephone book, you know, in these, you know, telephone booths they used to have way, 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 way back then. Um, And I would tear that telephone book up, and I would pretend like I had these college books because if you're walking with books, they don't usually stop you, you know. Uh, And I used to just watch these kids, man, my age, you know, 18 19 years old, 17, and they would walk by me with all these books on their bicycles, and they would talk about their professors, and they would talk about, you know, how they didn't like their professors, and, you know, and it was just, why can't I be here? You know, what was it that denied me the right to be here? Mm -hmm. And that sense of wonder, um, sustained me, you know, it literally sustained me, you know, in a way where this was where I always wanted to go, you know, how did I start, what happened, what, you know, uh, and then I would sneak off into these classrooms in these big old classrooms, not like, you know, an elementary school, that huge, you know, they got all these students in there and they're challenging the professor, and I'm just like, I got my hands under my chin, and my eyes are popped out, and I'm listening to this. You have 60 seconds remaining. I'm listening to this debate, and there's other college kids jumping into it, and they're just challenging everybody, and there's something so positive that comes out of that when these guys pick up all their books and they line their way outside the class. You hear their conversations and their conversations about something that is so unique in their life experiences now that, you know, they have to, they have to have so much respect for these professors. Um, I used to just love being there. So, I, I mean, I used to go to UCLA and that's where I hung out at, you know, and, and I realized, you know, later on when I got to I got here, it was not always here that I always wanted to be, you know. I always ended up, you know, or I always felt like this is where I, you know, this is where, you know, my life experiences is going to lead me to, you know. Um, But it was also, you know, at UCLA too, you know. I felt that sense of wonder being there. Um. Anyway, I felt like I was going there, you know. Exactly. You put yourself there. And, uh, but you also took yourself out of there as well, right? I, I took myself out of there. I did. I did. I was very, uh, uh, influenced by the people around me. You know, I was influenced by my family big time, you know. I just didn't want to come home thinking that I was, you know, uh, goofing off with books, you know? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. You know, um, I remember my uncle told me, he said, big books make you stupid. 
their book away from me. Um, wow. You're influenced by that stuff, you know? Uh, and, you know, for me, I understood exactly what he said, too. You know, I understood what he meant by that, you know? You know, there's no books going to save your life where you are right now, you know? You know? Hmm. You know you think you're going to go read a book and you walk down the street and get shot, you know, because you thought you was going to school and you didn't look out for, you know, someone coming down here with a gun, you know. Um, wow. Wow. Just just to take one moment. So he said you have to stay in fight or flight because by reading a book, you get into your prefrontal cortex, which puts you in a state of safety and contentment. And he said, "No, no, no! You stay, you stay on alert." That's an incredible thing. That's an incredible yeah. message. Wow. Yeah, that is the message. You know, don't, don't, don't get, don't, don't die out here because you think you can read a book, and, and that book gonna tell you how to live your life. You know. Wow. Um, yeah, and you get that message, man. This is your favorite uncle telling you this. You know what I mean? Uh, and it sounds pretty cool, too. You know, you know, big books make you stupid, you know? Uh, mm. Kind of explains why you ain't never tried to read a big book, too, right? You know? Uh, but you, you hear that message, it, it, it sticks, you know? Um Prison is became your college and it became your refuge, right? Yes, it did. It did. It did. You know. Yeah, you pretty much said it. That's exactly what it did become. You know, and it is that today. And your monastery. It's that too. You know, it's my it's my gymnasium when I'm exercising. It's you know it's. It's where I am, you know. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Um, when you convinced the entire um, cell block to flood the cell instead of when they were angry at the, the two officers that were um, taunting them, they were re getting ready to really hurt those officers. And you, you rerouted them to flood the cells instead. And so that's just another example of you redirecting um, possible violence uh, and death to a right. positive outcome. Yeah, I was really thinking that time. Boy, I was really thinking. Um, yes. Yeah, and I, 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 I was glad that I was able to think of that. You know. Well, I am too because this is this is like this is evidence of of your of your growth, of your maturity, of your You have sixty seconds remaining. Of your transformation, um and of who the man, of the man that you are. This is evidence. Right, right, right. Hey, you know, I I, I just try my best, you know. I, 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 I trust myself oh, so much more having a spiritual foundation, you know, 
uh, I just trust myself a lot more in terms of, you know, looking at things from perspectives that, you know, I, I believe there is a right and a wrong. Are you there? Yes. Um, uh, there is a r- right and wrong is the duality thinking, right? And uh, that's that's what prison is about. You were you did something wrong, therefore you should be punished. Thank you for listening to part one of my conversation with Jarvis J. Masters. Part two will be posted in a couple of weeks. For more information on the growing campaign to exonerate Jarvis J. Masters, please go to www.freejarvis.org. As always, if you liked this podcast, please rate subscribe and donate to our organization at compassionprisonproject.org. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and I'll see you next time.